Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to Coming Cast with me, Tony Robinson. And today it's going to be a bit wibbly wobbly because we are doing... The history of jelly. Stop sniggering in the back row. This is a very serious podcast. Jelly, like everything else, has a very serious history. I want to rescue jelly from its place as a children's party food because there was a time when making jellies was an art form and took pride of place on the tables of the wealthy. And my two excellent guests today are going to help me out in describing all this. The leading food historian and presenter Annie Gray and the remarkable Mr. Willy Wonka himself, the entrepreneur Sam Bompas. So there was a thing in America for a jello salad. There was a vogue for setting all the elements of a salad, sometimes cooked elements, into sweet jellies. And into that you would set grapes, lettuce, walnuts, olives. You might mix it with a bit of mayonnaise as well, maybe some cooked potato, and you could build this thing up and every single element adds a new level of just absolute horror to the entire thing. But it does look spectacular. It looks it amazing. It looks incredible. It looks... If you're putting together a sideboard, maybe there's a space for it. But before we go to that, here's Melissa, my producer. She's here again for a chat, aren't you, mate? Jelly Tony? Why? Jelly Tony. You can't just say Jelly Tony. That's not a question. I'm not calling you Jelly Tony. All right. So I'm just saying Jelly, comma, Tony, question mark. Yeah, I've, I've always loved Jelly. I think every kid of my generation loved Jelly. It was just kind of magic, wasn't it? You opened the packet and there were these squares inside and they were just jam-packed full of flavour and then you would put them in the water and stir and stir and put them. We didn't have a fridge in the very early days of my life. You'd put them outside. And when they came back in, they would be a jelly. What could be more wonderful than that? Do you have a very early jelly memory or is it just general jelly memories? Jelly heaven? Oh, yeah, just jelly heaven. Well, jelly's different from everything else. That's the odd thing about it. Maybe that's the reason more than any other why I wanted to do it as a podcast. I can't think of any other food that wobbles in the way that jelly does. It was quite a challenge, Tony, when you said, let's make a podcast about jelly. And I was thinking, OK, can we do jelly? But actually, I think we can because we've got two really interesting guests to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, well, everything has a context, doesn't it? I mean, to be quite honest, that's what I'm saying, isn't it? In, in all of these podcasts, whether it's about, I don't know, something like facial hair or tattoos, they all have a context. And of course, jelly does too. Cool. Let's get to it. Let's hear about the history of jelly. Bring it on, jelly, baby. Today I'm with Sam Bompas, who is a food entrepreneur, a food specialist and a jelly specialist, and Annie Gray, who is a food historian. And what we're talking about is jellies and all things wobbly. Sam, what's your favourite flavour of jelly? Well, the thing I love about jelly is if anyone makes you a jelly, you can almost immediately tell what their palate is like. 
Um, making a jelly is a bit like making a cocktail, so I'd often advocate if you're making a jelly for yourself, choose a favourite cocktail. For myself, I love Negronis. Negroni jelly can be really, really exquisite, but also alarmingly strong. If you're making it like a Negroni, it will be as strong as a Negroni. So brace yourself and be careful. And make sure it's a little jelly. Well, <laughs> or make sure you don't have any responsibilities afterwards. <laughs> Annie, favourite jelly? I like a champagne jelly. It doesn't have to be champagne. Could be any other sparkling wine. But if you chill the bottle really, really well before you make it, then you retain the bubbles in it. So when you eat it, you do get a proper fizz on your tongue. Oh. And it's even better if you set bits of fruit in it, because then you sort of feel like you're healthy as well as slightly drunk at the end of it. Is it just a coincidence that both of you have chosen alcohol-based jellies? I would have thought so, probably, but I don't know, there's something, I suspect it's something to do with the fact that we both study jelly and we're both really into jelly and therefore we see jelly as something that is adult and interesting and sophisticated, not just kind of blackcurrant cubes that you add water to. Although blackcurrant cubes you add water to shouldn't be knocked, I have to say. True. They brought me into the world of jelly. It's fair, it's fair, but they are kind of better, I think, when you eat them as cubes rather than when you actually add the water to them. It's funny, though, that when I asked you that question, the way your faces went when you told me about the flavour of jelly you liked was very young and a little bit naughty, which is sort of what jelly's like, isn't it? It's, ooh, jelly, it's a different thing. It's not like penguin biscuits or yo-yos or hard-boiled eggs. It's from a different world. Yes, I slap a jelly on the table, everyone smiles, everyone's got a jelly story. You know, given that jelly is now something that you, you arrive at very, very early on, you have lots of memories to access, but I think jelly can also be done in a very sophisticated way, and that's perhaps where the booze is coming in. Yeah, and let's face it, there is nothing else like jelly. There is nothing that wobbles on the table. There's nothing that's slightly smutty, but also just delightful in the way that jelly is. And there's nothing that, that feels like jelly in the mouth. Even the word is kind of slightly sort of seasick humory combined with magical delight so i just don't think there's anything else like it no it it must be one of the most tactile foods i'm sure that somebody wrote a book called jelly in my knickers if they haven't they should because that combination of jelly and your bum i just think is <laughs> well it does it does take you to a whole world of niche interest if you're if you're interested in looking at it there's a whole subgenre in the internet called sploshing which involves amongst other things sitting in jelly really is that true <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy for you to substantiate <laughs> with the internet when you say among other things can you tell us what any of the other things are oh well like in the world of slimy food and food you might like to sit on. There's cakes, there's baked beans. Uh, I think particular people have particular interests. We came upon it very early in our, our first forays as jelly mongers when we set out uh, 16 years ago to really explore the world of jelly making and um, didn't really have very many commissions. One of the first was to make jelly for a splosh party, which I think in our, our then prudishness we declined, but you know, maybe, maybe. You wouldn't know. Maybe, uh, who knows. Tell us about your company, because it's an extraordinary story. 16 years ago or so, set up Bombs and Par with uh, my business partner, Harry Par, and very long-time friend. We've known each other since we've been 13. And uh, we want to make fine jellies, like the historic ones. We want to use beautiful copper moulds. I've actually got, got one here that we, we made. And uh, we found that we couldn't afford them. They're, they're really fancy. If you buy an antique one, they, they cost a lot of money. So it might, might be sort of 400 quid or so. And that's when Harry realised he could use the same things he'd learnt, trained to be an architect, same techniques, same technology. And instead of using it to design buildings, he'd use it to design jellies. That is one of the days of inhuman history, isn't it? It's nice as well, though, isn't it? Because Karem infamously said that cookery was the finest branch of all the arts and that architecture was sort of the bit that cookery sat in. So it's sort of fitting and it does fit with what you do in terms of the history of jellies and the, the kind of bringing of history to the present and the making of it being relevant and those kind of things. Well, Karem is one of our absolute culinary heroes. If you look at his, uh, they call him Peace Monte. Who is um, he? So known as the King of Chefs and Chef de Kings, he cooked variously for George the Fourth, the Tsar Nicholas the First, and spent his off hours in the library looking at architecture and then drawing it as cake. 
or <laughs> then walking around St. Petersburg and, and thinking about improvements that he, with his chef's eye, could make to the palaces that were then being built. Annie, one of the phrases that you used just now was the history of jelly. I know everything has got a history. What do we, what do we know about its early days? Well, it developed quite slowly. So jelly comes from, or jelly, gelatin, the, the basic substance to make jelly, is the collagen that holds bones, sinews, all those things together. So if you boil down any animal or any fish, you will get some form of jelly coming out of that. And the earliest references to jelly really come from the 14th century, but but quite clearly anybody who's ever boiled anything will have some form of jelly. But sometime around the medieval period, the early medieval period, people started to realise that this was quite an interesting substance. It looked nice. You could potentially strain that jelly and make it look even nicer because then it would look clearer. And you could use that in a culinary sense to then set meats into. So the earliest jellies and certainly the earliest recipes for jellies turn out to be things much more like brawn. So uh, a meat that's been, you normally take trotters, pig's head is normally modern brawn. Those things are boiled down, boiled and boiled and boiled and boiled. And then eventually you get the meat, which is now so tender, you could just sort of pass a spoon through it. And then the jelly that's come off it and you would set that meat in the jelly. And today a brawn would often be turned out They don't seem to have been turned out in the early medieval period or indeed really until the 17th century. But there was nevertheless a big development within jellies as people got more confident with making them. People also started to use a substance called isinglass, which is the gallbladder of a sturgeon, believe it or not. The best ones came from Russia. And isinglass was used to set jellies on fast days. So if you adhered to Catholicism, as of course we did in Britain until the Reformation, then about half the year was a fast day. You couldn't eat any animal products. So then you'd use your isinglass. And we had our meat jellies, we had our fish-based jellies. And then in the 17th century, there seems to be this coming together of technology and of thought and of interest in food. It's a huge time of culinary change. And that's the point where you start to get the first jellies, which are called crystal jellies, and where you get the development of what will be, for the next 200 years or so, the jelly-making substance par excellence, which is calves foot jelly. So we've now come to the great burgeoning of, of jelly ideas. But scrolling back a bit, you've got, you'd say that the earliest jellies weren't turned out. So presumably they were carried around, just like you'd carry around a pasty or a cake or whatever, the transporting of food, you They think? were much, much softer, we think, than the jellies that you'd get now. So you wouldn't be able to sort of boing a, a fork off them. More like the meat you'd get on a pork pie, although they could be quite stiff as well. So if you think about, for example, uh, a beautiful silver or pewter bowl with some fish in that, cooked fish in that, and those fish are set into jelly. So you could carry them around, but they weren't designed for transportation. These were things that would be cooked up and, and put on the table by its very nature. Jelly involves meat, so it's going to only be served to people who are wealthy. It also is very time-consuming to make, so again, this denotes wealth. So these are the kind of dishes that you would get on the table of the aristocracy, of princes, of kings, of queens. These are dishes that are designed to look beautiful, to sparkle, to, to please the palate as much as please the eye. But going back to this notion of, of, of the pie and the jelly on top of it, does that have any significance? I, mean, I love the jelly on a pork pie but is it just a gloss no i mean sam will sam's cooked a lot of pies so you know as well as i do that pouring the jelly in it helps to not only preserve the meat inside but it also helps with the integrity of the pie uh, i mean you've made some really big examples of pies i suspect so uh, you'll know that <laughs> the jelly sometimes crucial yeah but it's useful as a preservative yeah. and also to if you're if you're cutting it around to keep it looking good but especially at a time before refrigeration having gels around like that is really rather wonderful of course it can be a lot of effort have you have you tried to make um <laughs> medieval style jellies Annie? i've made casket jelly and yeah it was um three days that i'm never going to get back oh worth doing worth doing the flavor was unbelievable and the wobble I think was worth doing once just, yes once once and then you realize that packet gelatin is one of the few cook shortcuts that is definitely worth having i quite like the um talavant jelly recipe which says and it's part of the recipe instructions sorry says, the, the what so taliban i'm probably i'm probably pronouncing it wrong i've only read it but but um you know one of the very early 12th century cooks yeah. um the recipe says um if you'll make a jelly you do not need to sleep because there's so much work oh, it, really <laughs> like, it just takes out like if you're making it from scratch without yeah. the sort of 
leaf gelatin that, that we now use, you need to spend a lot yeah. of time clarifying. They're in big quantities, a lot of the early recipes mm. as well. So a gang of calves' feet is quite common in the 18th century, which is four calves' feet. Big, big calves' feet. Um, veal was slaughtered slightly later then. So you, you you need big vessels, huge amounts of calves' feet, loads, gallons of water, loads of spice as well in these early jellies. And then once you'd boiled and boiled and boiled to extract all the gelatin, then it would be strained three, four, five times. Oh, in between times, you'd have to let it sit to skim the fat off as well. So this really was a process that would literally take days before you even just had the jelly. And then, then that had to be flavoured up with wine and also um, sometimes with sack, which is a, a type of fortified wine, so a lot like cherry, until you ended up with something that was kind of, I suppose, it's, what would you describe the taste as? It's kind of vaguely meaty, but only just. Yeah, you're still, you're still, you're still haunted by the meat. And it's still in the same way yeah, that if you get, if you get low, if you get low grade gelatin or bronze grade gelatin, it's always a little bit porcine. I was going to say that's piggy though, whereas if mm. you use the calf's feet, it's more sort of veely. Mm. So it's a slightly, yeah, and the mouthfeel is slightly different as well. It's a bit more, just a bit more gelatinous, I suppose, mm. is the right way to describe it. A bit more like eating a really softly boiled tendon. I know that um, uh, vegetarians still really steer clear of, uh, of gelatin. What kind of process is it, the, the sort of mass manufacturer? Well, I don't know if they do totally steer clear of it. And, and we've had a lot of experience with that, making literally tens of thousands of jellies over the year. And, and sometimes you feel, I don't know if it's the playfulness of the jelly or it's reverting back to childhood. Um, sometimes quite strict adherence of a vegetarian or even a vegan diet will give themselves permission to have a jelly. That said, the making of the gelatin is using a lot of the, the most horrific bits of, of um, in, in at the moment, Britain, pig. Um, and you're putting the pig skin through sort of successive layers of acid bath to wa- wash out all the collagen-rich elements of it. And, but the good thing is you're using all of the animal. All of the animal that, that is being slaughtered primarily for, for, for the meat is being separated and, and put to good use. So. Right, it's, it's proper nose-to-tail eating. Mm. I think it's something that people don't tend to think about when they have a jelly, that this is actually incredibly, in some ways, ethical. But there are some there are some really really good um, gelling agents as well. They're not quite as good. They don't have the same mouthfeel. And the good thing about gelatin is it melts at body temperature, so it just feels luxurious and silken as you put it in your mouth. But and you can, if you muck it up, you can also reboil it and reset it. It's which very was very massively f- important in the past, where you could reuse your jellies, melt them down, set them into smaller shapes, stripe them up, so that you would never really have any form of waste from your jelly. It's so forgiving, <laughs> but you can use agar agar and recommend that. Is that is that a vegetarian option? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, seaweed, isn't it? It's, it's made of seaweed, yeah. And does it work as well as gelatin? Uh, it, it works differently. So you don't you don't get the same uh, mouthfeel. The good thing is that you can get some quite you know. So in different in different countries, you know, jelly is not a uniquely British story. We have a, our, our own cultural food ways with it. But if you're you know hot countries make uh, jellies as well. So there are beautiful jellies made across uh, Southeast Asia using agar-agar. And because it's a little bit more brittle, you can use different tools or gelatine as in Mexico. Because it's a little bit more brittle, you can use tools to inscribe names and flowers and sort of quite ornate you know, designs within the fissures you can sort of sculpt into the jelly in a way that you can't really do it with gelatin. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi. 
Hi, this is Tony Robinson bringing you my cunning cast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating or a review. And do take a look at our back catalogue. There's a growing selection of shows there to keep you company. Everything from Census, Coronation, Nights, What the Past Smelt Like, loads and loads. You're going to find something you like, aren't you? And it's brought us up to 17th, 18th century with, with, with the history of jelly. Before we explore that, give us part two of the story of your business, because now you are you're making really exotic jellies, aren't you? Well, at that, at that point, we knew how to make jellies with malt. I've, got, I've brought some along, actually. So what we found out is through using sort of CAD design, we could then 3D print a mould. Here's St Paul's Cathedral. It's one of the, the very first ones that we designed. And actually, a few years ago, I asked Harry what his best design jelly was. And he said St Paul's Cathedral. And I said, maybe <laughs> some other designers and architects had, um, well, Christopher Wren had something to, <laughs> to do with it. But once you've got this, this is really the tool. And then we'd use a vac former. Um, so as you might have had at, an, um, uh, at a school in your, your um, design classes, um, your crafting classes to punch that through and stretch some plastic over it and that'll give you a plastic mold like this and these plastic molds kind of work of all the molds you have very 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 thin plastic molds that we make will get the best heat transfer through it if you have the mass manufactured plastic molds they're hard to use if you have ceramic molds forget about it oh. they're almost impossible to use glass you have to worse. and glass even worse with those i it took me a long time to to get to grips with them and eventually i ended up calling up ivan day he's like the sort of indiana jones of the pantry just <laughs> 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 like yourself annie and he said that where we'd gone wrong was not lining the molds with yeah. animal fats to to be able to vigorously shake out the jellies you're saying that i have a really vivid memory when i must have been about five or six we had glass molds in our house and the problem always was getting those little oh. bits at the top out they would just stay there gripping to the glass Fair an absolutely awful design the glass molds that you get almost everywhere in antique shops and sort of junk shops are the, the sort of characteristic glass ones that have almost like a a bunch of grapes in the top they're not them they're just geometric forms but the secret is treks or mm. other you can use lard but it tends to leave a certain taint or you can solidify something like almond oil if you put that in the fridge or the freezer that will turn solid and if you're really really quick you can brush it on but treks or other vegetable shortening is much much better even then to be honest I've had disasters where the entire top half just stays in the mould because, of course, it just forms this suction cup. I'm oh, sorry. I love that you use the term jelly disaster. It's something. <laughs> it's something that's haunted us <laughs> for over a decade, oh. and, and there's always an impending fridge failure yeah. or like. And every doing... time, because you transport them and you think this is going to be fine, but you never ever know until you turn it out whether something's got stuck or whether there's a, a sort of random hole in the mould. If you're using copper ones, you sometimes don't spot the fact there's a hole. I mean, just all sorts of things. Ones where there are some of the ceramic moulds that you get uh, were designed to have flummery, which is white jelly, basically what we'd call blancmange, put in, and you could colour that. So you could say you've got a mould with a, a lion on top or something. You could do the lion in uh, in white, and then the rest in a red jelly. But to do that, obviously, you need to set the lion or partially set that, then pour in the second colour, and it's very very easy to overset the first bit, so that when you turn it out, the lion just neatly slides off the entire thing onto the plate winks at you for a couple of seconds and then slides onto your feet <laughs> you very quickly referred to blamange which to me was certainly on a par with jelly although it was often sniffed at in certain quarters how, how did blamange come about well blamange started as a medieval recipe based on chicken and rice and it sort of gradually morphed into something that was more usually set with another gelling agent, really, than gelatin. So by the 20th century, it had become set with rice flour a lot of the time, or corn flour, kind of coming full circle. But in the kind of intervening 500 years, it went through this phase of being rice-based, not rice-based, cream-based, milk-based, and settled into a white jelly. And there was also jaune which translates as yellow eat, in the way that blancmange translates as white eat. And jaune was a blancmange coloured yellow, uh, sometimes by using lots and lots of egg yolks, sometimes by faking it with sandalwood or something like that. So Blamange really now and for about 150 years has just meant a gelled white jelly-like substance but not always based on gelatin it was very much associated with the working class by sort of really by the 1870s 1880s and 
often moulded to the point that things that were like blancmange often got called just shape. So by the 20th century, you get a lot of people that just serve. So this is kind of lower middle class and, and below. People just put shape on their menus or they just go out and say, we're going to have shape for tea. And they're usually set by then with corn flour. So just milk, corn flour, sugar. And that's pretty much it. And sometimes you might get a little bit of flavouring in there if you're lucky, but they're quite basic. I find blancmange delicious. I love the purity of something that's just really good milk or really good cream and not much else but it's it did become a bit of a joke the skin on the bottom of a blancmange oh, precisely oh. sam do you use blancmange yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> i think annie was talking about layer jellies yeah um a really beautiful layer jelly you can make is is layers of blancmange and then like a strawberry jelly as well and you get this this incredible vivid red and white red and white stripe all the way down and it, it's um the contrast is remarkable of course every layer takes a little bit of time to set, so yeah, be careful when you're setting. I think I think one of the chefs in in our studio made for my father's seventy fifth birthday a jelly with seventy five layers, and that's been oh. an hour to set in each one. So that was that was incredibly kind. You just kind of glossed over a phrase which epitomised wonderfulness for me when I was a kid, which was jelly and blancmange. The two together produce a really nice taste, don't they? Yeah, well, it's, it's almost like self-sourcing with your cream. You've got to inset within the within the dish. And one of the things with jellies is is sometimes there is a risk of having a sort of blandness of uniformity of dish. And the things that we love when we're eating is is contrast. So contrast of colour, which we're getting with um, those two colours, but also contrast of texture. So setting something within the jelly, be it bubbles um, <laughs> or fruit, or having something on the side of it as well, can really help maintain the interest across the dish. Yeah, we've got a really long tradition of jelly and ice cream. Uh, mm. I lived in France for a while and the host family with whom I stayed Madame was aghast at the idea of jelly and ice cream. She thought this was this was pretty much the worst excess of British cuisine. And I mean, in it, obviously, Sam's it's what looking I grew totally up on. shocked. Is that horror at her ignorance? No, 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 it's familiarity. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. not, not having much luck getting commissions. I, we had commissions all over the world, but never, yeah, never in France. France. They don't. They really don't do jellies apart from the savoury aspects. But I mean, there are references to eating jelly with cream in the 17th century, and jelly was often served on the table at the same time as ice cream because it was part of the dessert course and dessert for for really anybody in the 17th century onwards up until kind of the mid 20th century dessert was not what we would call dessert today which is kind of brownies and cakes and quite heavy things desserts was intended to be a palate cleanser so you'd have your soups and your fish and your meats and your roasts and your vegetables and your tarts and your pies and your puddings and then when you were sort of gasping for breath at the end of the meal in would come dessert and it would be jellies it would be ice creams it would be nuts and it would be perfect hot house fruit so the idea was that you just sort of ate something that would leave you fizzing really as you then mm. went off somewhere drunk into the night so this association of jelly and ice cream is a really old one and confectioners when they started to sell jellies so you wouldn't have to make them in-house you could go out and buy your jellies and, and buy your ice creams they often listed those together and then they sort of went on as this this kind of you just always have jelly and ice cream they went hand in hand until by the 20th century jelly and ice cream was what you served at parties and then inevitably they became associated with children so i think you know it's not this kind of plebeian why would you do that thing that that madame thought it was it's actually a really really good combination with really strong historical roots and the ices one of the things so we're, we're very familiar with jellies being molded now and and, and happily many jellies still are molded yep. now but we've, we've rather forgotten the the tradition of molded ices yes. and I've, I've got on my desk at work i've got a, <laughs> i've got a potato ice cream mold oh, it's so good it's so fun to use and it, it just it just fills me with sort of wonder and like the idea that well of course with a lot of these the historic dishes, you get some really wild recipes and and potato-based ices. Can you explain ices. your potato ice cream mould? Well, <laughs> it's like a little tuber, and it's two halves of uh, pewter that are hinged. And as you're making your ice cream, the ice cream maker, you'll scoop out a load of it and you'll shape it into this mould, and then you push it together and scrape off the excess. Then re-refrigerate this so that it, it takes on solidity and it can maintain its shape out on the table ready for service and then you'll pass a sort of delicate cloth over it to, to unmold it or run it over some under some tepid water and out pops 
a little potato ice cream. <laughs> do you do many shaped ice creams for your business or, or, or do they melt too quickly for that to be practical? Not particularly. I'm, I'm in love with them. I think they're, they're miraculous. They are very, very hard work. So again, we're, with this, when we're looking at the sort of glory days of jelly and ice cream, when it was at its real zenith, you're looking at, you're looking at effectively elite food where massive man hours and great resources, including the jelly molds themselves and the ice cream molds themselves, which are not a useful cooking implement. A useful cooking implement is a pot <laughs> or a knife or a board that you can use for almost anything. A jelly mold or an ice cream mold is... It's a revolt. You're for, yeah. I mean, you're, you're not cooking for necessity anymore. You're cooking for show. I mean, it is worth saying that people, I think, have a tendency to go to English Heritage Houses, National Trust Houses, Brighton Pavilion, and they see all the molds and they instinctively go, oh, look at the jelly molds. Didn't people love jelly? And it is worth pointing out, I think, that it, so many more things were molded in the past than now. Mm. Not just ice cream, but cakes. An awful lot of the molds that people see especially if they've got a flat bottom were for cakes so there was a particular type of cake called a savoy cake so it's sort of a light sponge that was always molded you would mold suet puddings you'd mold christmas puddings i mean if it could be molded if it would hold a shape you would do it rice would be put in a border mold marmalades would be set in mold i mean you know absolutely everything was molded so if you think about jelly in isolation you're doing it a disservice you need to think of a table full of molded items and again as sam says it's all very much elite food at that point in the 18th century I've been holding off the uh, the 18th century until now, but let's give it its head. What happened that transformed jelly at that time? People realised they could mould jelly. They could make it stiff enough to mould and hold a shape. And the first time you sort of get this happening seems to be around the 1660s, 1670s. There's a cook called Robert May who talks about moulding jellies into scallop shells, so clearly using actual scallop shells, but he also talks about wooden and tin moulds. Now he was writing, really looking back at the food before the English Revolution, so he was looking back at the food of the 1630s and 1640s. So by then we know things were being moulded and turned out. And from then on really it's this quite, it's quite a quick change to jellies being habitually moulded. Not all of them. You still get lots and lots of jellies served in glasses. So there are jelly glasses, very popular way to serve jelly, certainly at the beginning of the 18th century, so sort of 1710, 1720s, was to have a series of really beautiful, very, very delicate little glasses with handles on. And they would be served on salvers, often tiered salvers, a bit like the cake stands you'd get in hotels today. And you'd have you'd have different coloured jellies a lot of the time. So by this point, people were really experimenting with using food colourings in jelly. So you might have a yellow jelly, a green jelly, a white jelly and a red jelly, blancmange, all of them displayed on this beautiful silver salver and then stacking up to the ceiling. But you also started to get moulded jellies, first of all in fairly simple shapes and then increasingly in weirder and wilder and more and more just brilliant brilliant shape so if you were to look at for example Elizabeth Raffles cookbook published in 1769 experienced English housekeeper one of the absolute best books of the 18th century she has a whole section on jellies and as you read it your jaw is just dropping everything from the moon and stars in jelly to a transparent pudding which is absolutely one of the best jellies I've ever had and completely fits the textural Tam's nodding completely fits this idea of having texture in it because it's basically a pudding so Christmas pudding style so it's got currants it's got nuts in, it's got candied peel in, but without the flour and the eggs. So what you've got is jelly, but then you look through and you've got all of this fruit suspended in the jelly. So you have textual contrast, taste contrast. Her jellies were magnificent. And what is the moon and the stars one? How did that operate? So there's a vogue for having things set in jelly, really making use of the magnifying properties of a clear jelly. So with moon and stars in jelly, and there were other things too, cornucopias of fruit and jelly and melons and things like that. Oh, I like an undersea adventure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Yes. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> An undersea adventure. They're just, they're so good. You'd get a, a bowl and you'd fill that with your beautiful clear jelly. Mm. And into that, as it's set, you would set little moulds with the design on the outside. So they would be set into the jelly. And then when that jelly had fully set, you would take out the little moulds, leaving, of course, little crevices where they were with often very intricate designs on them. And then you would pour in very, very gently some white blancmange 
or perhaps you'd insert some gilded fish because, you know, just making jelly isn't hard enough. Let's add some gilding as well. And when you then set that and then turned all of that out, you've got, as you're looking through it, you've got exactly that, an undersea adventure. And of course, this is an age where refrigeration didn't exist. To, to set these jellies, you had to obtain ice from your ice house. So even just setting the jellies is an extra layer of just unbelievable hassle. And we think about there's jeopardy in making jellies <laughs> with, a, with a reliable refrigerator. Yes. But imagine doing that with all of the ice and then presenting that on the table where it's quivering away, the whole sort of thing acting as sort of optic lens, big old wobbles. It's a, you know, it's a total moment spectacle. I will be fair, I actually prefer setting jellies using a bucket of ice than I do mm. using a fridge because if you set your jelly in a bucket of ice, so basically you get a huge bucket, fill it full of crushed ice and put a, a tea cloth in it just so the ice doesn't leap out and into your jelly, set your mould into that. You can make those layered jellies without having to move the jelly mould and it's that that I always mm. find the moment of total jeopardy when it splashes mm. up the side. So I... It's an early 19th century method of making them, although it's probably much earlier. It's just mentioned at that point for the first time. I find that a much surer way to do it. And I've Mm. I've had to do it in costume in front of the public using that method and using natural food colouring. So that does, it it raises Mm. the level of jeopardy to kind of warning lights going off. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and my very special guests are talking jelly this week, Annie Gray and Sam Bompas. Sam, the kind of complexity of jellies that Annie's been talking about, mm. in a way, you're doing a second renaissance, aren't you, with, with your company? You're, you're creating the wonders of jelly that certainly my post-war generation has never come across before. Well, I, I think jelly is just a terrific medium for creativity. And I think, think as soon as you start exploring what can be done with it, 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 you know, I've been making jellies for 16 years. I still order every jelly there is to be had on any menu and um, keep on thinking of new ideas to do with jellies as well. It's, it's, it's relentless. And every, so what you saw with all of that history of mold making was every new form of craftsmanship, every new technology soon found its way into the domain of jelly. So electroforming comes along, you get more complicated jellies and with ever more intricate shapes. Um, and that's in the 19th century, of course. Today, with sort of video technologies, we can have jellies that respond to you as you're eating them, that have a face with an expression that you know <laughs> react as you carve into the nose or ear or eye with a spoon and shriek in horror. We've made holograms in jellies as well, which had a, a spinning crucified Jesus for a <laughs> biblical... <laughs> Easter jelly, which was an innovation at the time. I thought it'd be more um, shocking than it was. <laughs> yeah, actually, it seemed delightful. But there, there's still things that we're discovering to do with jelly. And, and I think as new technologies become available, then we'll, we'll find more things to do. You, you've also created very large jellies, haven't you? Yeah, well, I, it's, a, it's a thing that we always got asked to do for many, many years, create vast jellies. And of course, some of our, our, our first jellying was making architectural jellies, which is jellies in the shape of architecture, but not on an architectural scale. We've talked a little bit about mouthfeel and and how much you need to set a jelly for it to come out of a mould or be set in a jelly glass. And of course, if you're if you're setting it in a vessel, then you use me- much less of the gelling agent than if you're setting it in a mould and it has to last out. The challenge with that is the more gelling agent you put in, the less it wobbles. And wobbling is always great um, with the, with the jelly, but also the more delayed the release of flavours you get. And, and sometimes, you know, when you have a, a jelly that's just on the verge of being liquescent, that's when you get the very best mouthfeel. So scaling it up. So what you find is, is actually when you're making jellies in moulds, the moulds don't tend to be that big. They tend to be a litre, maybe pushing it a litre and a half. If you think about it, that's that's not that big on, on the table. It's not that impressive. But we finally worked out how to make really, really big jellies. That was using totally different gelling agents. We must set a, a, a make a 50-ton jelly was the pinnacle. And that was setting, that was, again, <laughs> not a lot of sleep involved. Set round Isambard Kingdom Brunel's ship, the SS Great Britain. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild to do what kind of events do you do them for what, what was the ss great britain one down in bristol that was in, yeah that was in bristol and that was um for a show called it was called museums at night and and put together by culture 24 and the idea was to to get people into museums across britain who the stuff that museums normally do doesn't really appeal to them and um in quite a weird setup artists had their names thrown in a ring 
and the museums could bid for artists, but the museums would tell the artists what to do. Now, most of the artists sensibly said, well, we'll come and get do a talk. And you know, so no one <laughs> And we said, this sounds great. We'll do anything. And um, I think the most anyone else had was four bids. We had 50 bids uh, for us because we said we'd do anything. And it was quite extraordinary things. Some of them were just from a very small museum in, in the Outer Hebrides. And they said, yeah, yeah, we're just going to have a bonfire. We've got great whiskey. <laughs> Don't really care what happens, but it'll be a lot of fun. So that sounded a lot of fun. And yes, it's Great Britain in, in Bristol said, come float our boat on a sea of jelly. And we said, that sounds marvellous. We'll be up for it. And then the public voted for what they wanted to happen. And this is the early days of uh, Twitter. They got the vote out and, and they were the they were eventual winners. We sat down, discovered the budget. It was £500. <laughs> <laughs> which to make 50 tons of jelly is, 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 is not a lot, but it was such a good idea. I love it when there's a good idea that you can get really excited about. And, and How did you make it? Well, we had uh, in our lockup through a mishap, we had at one point commissioned all of the sodium alginate in the world at the time <laughs> to be made for, for a, a series of chocolate waterfalls. But there was alginate left over. We said, if you could... Just a note to the listener, you are awake. <laughs> <laughs> we said we will we will supply and we will give you all the sodium alger that we need to make this this jelly it wasn't edible i, I should say because we didn't didn't want to waste the food we just use the, the sodium alginate but we'll need um two things waste disposal and a lot of help and they said no problem and they fixed that up and it's the only event i've had sponsored by a waste disposal company <laughs> that came to clean up <laughs> All the jelly and make sure it was, it was uh, properly disposed of. And then the helpers that day were the community's payback team. So, so we had a, a, a actually brilliant and incredibly motivated group of people who are doing community service. And their community service happened to be making an awful lot of jelly for Bristol folk. It was great fun. Let's go back to the time span of jellies. So we've now talked about the 18th century. What was happening at the time of the Industrial Revolution and, and beyond? Well, one of the big stories was, uh, as Sam has mentioned, mould technology changing. So you get tin moulds coming in, which means that the middle classes can start to make their own jellies. But actually, most of the time, the middle class are not making their own jellies because to obtain the ice, to get hold of the ingredients, to get the moulds, to find the staff, to have the right amount of skill in the kitchen, it was just forget it. So jellies started being made a lot more by professionals, by confectioners. So you would you would order in your, your dessert course, really. And one of the big breaks Breakthroughs in terms of making that much more possible was the invention of packet gelatin, so ready-made gelatin, which would come in little packets. It was usually a powder, and later on you'd get leaf gelatin. The first patent for that was 1847, although that patent actually talks about a new process for making gelatin, so almost certainly you could have obtained ready-made gelatin before. The problem was it wasn't very good. Mrs Beaton uh, mentioned the fact that it was often quite badly flavoured, and although she may or may not have had actual experience of that, given that she plagiarised pretty much all of her recipes. She did normally draw upon lots of sources, so what she says is usually fairly accurate. So the gelatin that was available wasn't great, and most cooks who were worth their salt, and certainly all professional chefs, carried on boiling down calves' feet to make into jellies, really until the end of that century. But of course, once you start to get jellies becoming slightly more cheap, and slightly more in the reach of the masses, what happens is that those people that really can afford it start to want to make even more incredible jellies. So by the end of the century, the range of jelly moulds you could get was absolutely extraordinary. And I mean, you get things like the Alexandra Cross and the, the Danish Cross, and these are what, what are known as pillar moulds, so they're very, very tall moulds, really almost impossible to use. And they are in the shape of, in, in one case it's the, the Danish flag, in another case, I mean, all sorts of symbols. And what you do is you pour jelly into them and then you set a sort of liner into them that hangs on top. And then you take the liner out when the first jelly is done, almost like making the moon and stars, but sort of, what's that, sort of 30 centimetres tall, something like that. Then you pour in another jelly and sometimes several different colours of jelly until when you turn it out, every time you slice across it horizontally, you have a perfect representation of the Danish flag or a symbol or whatever it is they are unbelievable and just I can't even imagine what it would be like to use those I mean Ivan Day who Sam mentioned has those moulds and has used them and can turn them out and he's probably the only person on earth who can although you're going to tell me that you're about to remake one 
and oh, no, got we've, one we've, in silicon. No, we've, well, well, no, we, we, well, they're <laughs> very expensive. They're real, yeah. real fancy. So we 3D scanned them and then remade them. And yeah. well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on, but they're re- they are really, really hard to use, yeah, and they're just hypnotic. They're mesmerising. You, you have it on the you have it on the table, and the first time you see one, you, you can't imagine how it was made. It's what is it that you're seeing that you can't imagine? So normally, if you're setting jellies, you can set the layers horizontally. And here you have a, a core shot through the jelly going right the way vertically up it in, in, a, in a contrasting colour that is glistening in the light. It's, it's utterly decorative, especially if you imagine tables, tablescapes illuminated by candlelight and this, this quivering as people gently nudge it yeah. as well. It's you know, still amazing. They are mind-boggling. You also get, at this point, still this kind of savoury jellies, which is something we haven't really talked about. Mm. Those are also still very much in vogue. So there's a man called Theodore Garrett who, who wrote the Encyclopedia of Practical Cookery, which is about as practical as a chocolate teapot. It's, I mean, some of the recipes are really practical, but it is, it comes in eight volumes and it is mind boggling. And his jelly section, which is an interesting thing, contains recipes for what we would now call jam. So jelly as in current jelly, those kind of things, fine. Restorative jellies, so invalid jellies, which was another branch of jelly making, but they were usually not set and turned out. They were just sort of given to invalids at that point in a cup. And also lots and lots of savoury jellies. So he has one, which is an Italian jelly, which has got cheese set in it. But it's with a sweet calf's foot jelly, and I'm kind of looking at that. I was looking at it the other day thinking, this is something I'm suddenly feeling the urge to make, to set sort of fontina or something like that in a sweet calf's foot jelly just strikes me as something that would hurt every sense that you have in a modern way, and therefore almost it's worth trying. I mean, I love cheese, and I love jelly, but I'm not sure how it works. together. No, it'd, be, it'd be amazing. I'd be up for it. Like, like, I, think, I think don't hold back. Sam, have you, have you done savoury jellies? Uh, yeah, a little bit, like, but but more as an accompaniment to the main course um, rather than the the course itself. So, what um, kind of thing would it be? Oh, like a you know, for to go with some sort of lamb dish or something like that. Setting, you know, making a, a rosemary jelly that sits alongside it can be quite nice. There was always when you had your Sunday roast, there was often anyway a bit of jelly at the bottom. That, that combination of gravy mm. and jelly, which exactly. was magnificent. Oh yeah. Especially when you dip your roast potatoes in it and squidge them down, and then, yeah, that one. Yes, say it again. <laughs> but, but, but jelly, jelly's so back in fashion. You've got Gucci putting out campaigns at the moment with with jelly front and center, and you know part of it is the delight, part of it is the sort of nostalgia, but some of it is like the horror of jelly as well. So, you know, those those jellies that can really sort of alarm and excite at the same time, like some of those, are finding their way back into a repertoire. Yeah, I mean, there are some pretty horrific jellies. The mm. Americans did their savoury salad jellies and their candle jellies and their jellies in a can where you oh, just, um, there are some excesses that I think it's, I'm glad we had an ocean between us. What was I, the I mean, the set salads. Set salads, yeah. <laughs> How does that go? So there was a thing in America for a jello salad, jello being the leading brand of, of packet ready-made jelly over there so the equivalent of sort of round trees or hartleys the cubes and there was a vogue for setting all the elements of a salad sometimes cooked elements into sweet jellies so the classic example is something like a lime jello jelly very very sweet very very synthetic and into that you would set grapes lettuce walnuts olives you might mix it with a bit of mayonnaise as well maybe some cooked potato and you could build this thing up and every single element adds absolute horror to the entire thing and then it would be served in slices so by that point all the textures would kind of have disappeared of everything inside it and you'd have this sort of sweet sour saccharin sharp mash-up i mean it's almost worse than trifle and i think that's that's saying something but, yeah, but it does look spectacular it looks, it looks incredible it looks, it yes. looks like it you know bedazzled with jewels and and if you're putting together a sideboard maybe there's a space for it Right at the back. But why not? Where do you can look fruits? at it. I mean, I can't. St- I can't stand salad. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's where it's going wrong. I just need to need to start setting it again. <laughs> Round trees and heartlings. <laughs> when did they arrive on the scene? Well, you could get pre-made jelly in uh, bottles, really, by the 1870s. So you could go out and you could buy your jelly ready to sort of reheat on the stove. You could even get a ready-moulded jelly in a tin, which you just sort of popped the top off and then turned it out. But the real heyday for pre-made jellies is between the wars. So 1920s was when Rountree's turned what had been a slab jelly, so you would buy it as a slab, into those cubes you add water to. So the 1920s and 30s really was a time when jelly had finally come down, really, from just 
just being on the tables of the aristocracy to being democratised and very much available to all. And at that point, you stop seeing so many amazing jellies on the tables of the rich, partly because they simply don't have the staff between the wars to make these incredible things. And even if they did have the staff, those staff... There were fewer of them. The ingredients were not necessarily available. It's ironic, really, because you actually start to get commercially produced ice, which means that people could actually make these things more easily. But then that's part of the reason, of course, they fall out of fashion, because once they're available to everyone, the rich don't want them. So that interwar period was really crucial for jelly development in terms of industrial jellies, those cubes, but also in terms of things like mass-produced moulds that were really, really cheap. You don't get plastic till after the Second World War, but you could get enamelware moulds, which work quite well. So that is when we get jelly, as I suppose we grew up with, most of us, in terms of things like the rabbit with the bow tie on, and the packet jelly that you just added some tinned fruit to if you were feeling really sophisticated. That's that key period, 1920s and 30s. Of course, it disappears pretty much during the war because you can't get hold of the sugar, and then comes roaring back in the 1950s partly because people go gosh I remember before the war when we had jellies and ice creams and it was amazing I really missed them and now I want jelly all the time so the 1950s sees a massive upsurge in jelly and and loads and loads of different kiddie moulds so tortoises and teddy bears and that kind of thing going back to the the Hartleys and Roundtree's slab jelly and jelly cubes it's a really good product it is it is is, is quite incredible as a product And, and and I think because it's so familiar to us in Britain, we don't we don't celebrate it. And having looked at product products around the world, if you buy jelly, it's still it's still sort of powdered gelatin. It's kind of gross. <laughs> make it when you make when you make it because you're using that powdered gelatin. You really smell it being quite animalistic. Whereas whereas it's quite different when you're using yeah. Um, I, I've the, the, used the, powdered gelatin a few times and really not got on with it. I mean, I think as well they are such iconic products. Mm. I mean, Rounders obviously doesn't exist anymore, and yet. It does as a brand name just for that 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 product. So, I mean, I've always found the flavours not strong enough, and I also find that they don't always retain their shape unless you're using a very flat mould. But you know, there's absolutely no doubt that they are sunk deep into the psyche of mm. anyone born mm. before about 1990. Absolutely. You, you talked earlier about the magic of jellies. What is more magical than breaking off one of those <laughs> cubes, putting the hot water in, stir, 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 stir. The little cube gets smaller and smaller until it's nothing. Then it cools down, it, it goes into a mould, it comes out again. You've got a jelly. You made it yourself. <laughs> you could be about three and a half and you could make a jelly. It's just great. It is just joyful. One final question, do you have a cunning plan? (laughs) Uh, What I'm really after is what you might see for the future of jelly. Sam, uh, you're the guy who invests in jelly. (laughs) Well, we've not talked about Benham and Froud, but we have talked about the Alexandra Cross. And the Alexandra Cross, that that very complex mould, is one of the Benham and Froud moulds. Benham and Froud was... um, the maker of the Rolls-Royce of, of the Jenny Mould era. And it, it, it sadly became defunct as a company about 100 years ago. But if you if you find a copper mould that's got a little Auburn Cross logo on it, that's a Benner and Froud jelly. And, and the Auburn Cross comes because they used to gild the finials on top of St. Paul's Cathedral. So that's the St. Paul's Auburn Cross that you're seeing on that jelly mould. And we're, we've been working to bring back Benham and Froud to, to make it, to put it, to give everyone, I mean, we found it very, very hard to find decent jelly moulds just to make them available so that people can use great jelly moulds. So yeah, Benham, Benham and Froud jelly moulds are reinstating the company and hopefully everyone can, we can reinstate jelly as well. I'd love to think that savoury jellies are going to make a comeback as well, Mm. especially with sustainable eating being so much in vogue now, quite rightly. The very fact that actually jellies are a really good way to eat in a nose-to-tail way, the fact that jelly is delightful and the fact that it's quite low-cost and low-key. I'd like to see sweet and savoury jellies come back with a wow. And if they're all using Benham and Froud moulds, so much the better, especially the one that I've got from you, which I think is supposed to be the Dome of Brighton Pavilion, but it looks a lot like a breast. Excellent. You know, who wouldn't love that on my table? Thank you both very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on X at Tony Robinson, and you can follow all our podcast news on X and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please don't forget to follow this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. They're all pure gold. Tony Robinson's Cast is produced by Melissa Fitzgerald and it's a Zinc Media production. Listener.